Dancers have a lot to balance. From their pirouettes to their jumps, a dancer's performance is a direct result of hard work and motivation. So where does food fit into this? There's a lot of myths and a ton of antiquated ideals about what a dancer's diet should look like. And I'm here to dispel those. I'm Rachel Fine, registered dietitian nutritionist and founder of To The Point Nutrition. I'm the dance nutritionist and I'm here to tell you that to be a successful dancer, you don't have to diet. Instead, I'll teach you how to use food as your best tool to enhance your performance. A nourishing meal plan not only fuels your dancing, but also enhances your strength, improves your balance, supports your flexibility, and most importantly, reduces your risk to injury. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you. And I'm so happy to be here. And I know it's been so wonderful to connect with you over the years. Yeah. So Rachel, why don't you just to like give everybody a little bit of information about yourself. I'd love for you to tell us about what you do and then kind of just talk about how your relationship with food was at growing up. Yeah, sure. So I'm um, Dr. Rachel Goldman. I'm a clinical psychologist in New York City specializing in health behavior change. So I, um, I utilize cognitive behavioral therapy to help people work on changing their thoughts and changing their behaviors to live happier, healthier lives. And that typically could be something related to like stress management and preventing burnout, as well as a lot of disordered eating behaviors um, or other health behavior change that is necessary. Um, and, and my story is kind of interesting. As, as I think you know, most of the story or part of the story, um, but growing up, I, I had a very good relationship with food. Um, I never really was a concern of mine. I was, I was always very active. Um, so I, I danced growing up from the age of two and a half up until, I want to say sophomore year of college, um, but there was a little shift in there. Um, so I, I had a very healthy relationship with food. I grew up in a small town in Maryland, and my dancing school was a community school, you know, was not competitive, although we did competitively dance. We traveled. I remember the excitement was always traveling to New York for, like, the Tremaine dance seminars and, and competitions and, like, going to, broad, you know, um, steps on Broadway and Broadway Dance Center and all of those things. But it was never competitive, and there was never any pressure, um, to either lose weight or look a certain way. Although I did always um, kind of just know that I didn't have the ballerina body type. I was, I was more of, um, I did everything, but I was more of the jazz dancer, the tap dancer, the modern dancer. And I took ballet, of course, for, for form and learning the, the basics and everything. Um, but I knew I was never going to be a ballerina and that was okay with me. Mm -hmm. um, then I had decided to go to school my freshman year um, for something called dance science. Um, so freshman year, I went to Goucher College, which I don't know if it's still known for dance, but years ago it was. Um, yeah, so I, I visited it in middle school and actually fell in love with the, the school and decided that is the only school I wanted to apply for and that is the school I wanted to go to. And I went freshman year, um, and it ended up kind of being like a double major in dance and medicine. It was a new major for them. They were still trying to figure things out. But there, I was very exposed to um, 
a different side of dance that I never saw growing up in a small town. So I witnessed um, and observed a lot of disordered eating and eating disorders. And I quickly decided that I was more interested in studying human behavior and understanding what was going on in the human brain and the connection between the mind and body. So the following year, I transferred to a larger school that had a larger psychology department and began studying psychology, but researching um, eating disorders and going into that field. So then I continued to dance sophomore year for fun. I took, I remember I was like in some, I don't know, some performance for tap dance, you know, like, I, but I did go from dancing several days a week to, um, you know, like one day a week. Um, so going back to the idea of food, I know you didn't ask specifically about body, um, but my, my relationship with food was, was, like I said, always pretty healthy, but I gained weight freshman year um, because I was not only growing up, I was, I was running and dancing freshman year. I was just dancing um, and, you know, late night pizzas and, and everything was happening. Gained some weight, um, which I think all of us struggle with our weight at some point or another. Um, and then transferred and kind of, you know, figured my way out, um, you know, kind of like my routine meaning. So I was dancing much less. I was working out, you know, kind of like balancing it all and realized that the two o'clock in the morning pizzas just weren't realistic. And everyone does it, I feel like, you know, freshman year because you're away from home mm -hmm. and figured out that routine, like I said, um, and decided to study psychology. So that was a really long intro, but I hope I answered your question. <laughs> yeah, you did. And it's so interesting to hear about how, um, like, you know, one thing I'd like to do with these talks is kind of hear about whether they're a dancer or they're some other type of professional who works with dancers, you know, what their relationship with food was and how they got to where they are now. Because I think all of us or all of the dance medicine professionals or just med medical professionals that I've spoken to, we've all kind of struggled with um, our own issues that have helped us grow what we do now. And one thing that you always work on is, um, or I should say always uh, educate about perfectionism and being a type A. So would you you know, define yourself as perhaps having that perfectionism in you? You know, I, I think I'm a very type A, or rather used to be, a very type A person. Um, and I think anybody that knows me probably would think that. Um, and I, I, I often talk about the term good enough. And I didn't learn it until I was on internship from my doctoral program. And I think it is one of the best lessons. Um, and that's why I kind of say, like, I used to be more of a type A perfectionist. Um, but I learned about good enough. Like I said, on my internship, I'll never forget one of my mentors, one day I was writing one of my reports and he was like, all right, Rachel, send me the report. And I was like, I'm not done. And he said, I don't care. He was like, send it to me when it's good enough. And I was like, well, what, what does that mean? You know, he said, well, you could read it and reread it and reread it and spend hours to find one error. He said, or you can send it to me when it's good enough and maybe I'll find an error. Maybe I won't, but it'll take me like one read through and it's done. And I was like, oh my God, that's an amazing concept, you know? Um, and, and I keep going back to that. And it's funny because I've trained many students, um, you know, in my field and I teach them on like one of the first days that they work with me, I'm like, I need to teach you good enough because I think it is such a great lesson. And I think the sooner that we learn it, 
there's just this weight lifted off of our shoulders, right? It's like freeing to know that we are good enough and we can do good enough. There is no perfect. So what are we striving for, right? We're, we're setting ourselves up for failure. That's all we're doing. I love this so much, especially because it is so difficult for us to see that there is this thing called enough, good enough, because we, so, so much of our culture, and I see it even with my son now, you know, similar to you, raising this young child who's like hearing messages from the outside of always having to strive, always having to achieve. How much can we, like, how can we go to the next step. And this is something that I always used to struggle with until I too learned that, you know what, well, maybe like where I'm at right now is good enough, right? Or what I did yesterday is good enough. And it's not, I think um, when you have the tendency to be a type A and you put that in our culture, like this type A person in our culture, it so often is what we see with dancers because dance is a almost like a heightened extreme culture of like, someone strive, always needing to strive for the next thing. It's like, you nail a double pirouette, well, then you got to start working on your triple. You nail a triple pirouette, you got to start working on four. It's almost like, it's a very difficult, this is one thing I always struggled with as a dancer. And what really limited me was that I really was never able to see myself as being good enough. And it, it was my big, I was my own worst enemy. It was my biggest obstacle. And I think a lot of dancers struggle with that. So hearing you, uh, you know, just even talk about this idea of good enough is so important. And I think it really transitions us so well into what today's topic is about, which is self-compassion. And what I really want to pick apart right now is the differences between self-compassion and self-esteem, because I've been listening to something and, and doing a little bit of my own research lately. I'm so curious to hear what you have to think, what you have to say about this is, the difference, differences between approaching life with this idea of self-compassion versus this idea of having to um, improve our self-esteem because uh, stems from the idea that we are always having to achieve something and improve something. It's not allowing us to kind of slow down and like see where we're at right now. We're, we're so focused on the future, the, you know, the, the future outcome that we're not seeing the journey. So curious to hear what you have to say about yeah. And, and I love that you said all of that because every time I go back to this idea of like slowing down and being right here right now, I just, you know, it takes us out of that anxiety state, right? Like if we think about it, anxiety comes from a place of thinking about the future, which hasn't happened yet and feeling overwhelmed and it's out of our control or thinking about what should have, could have, would have happened, which is also out of our control. But if we come back to the here and now into the present, and we're mindful and in the moment, then we can, first of all, accept, right? Like acknowledge and accept where we are. And that's going to decrease our anxiety as well. And I think that is, you know, that's the basis of mindfulness. And that's actually kind of, you know, the, the what we want to do when it comes to self-compassion, right? We want to practice mindfulness. And it's almost the opposite of perfectionism, right? Mm -hmm. Like being in the moment, accepting where we are, and being kind to ourselves with that. So, mm -hmm. so, to, so to answer your question, self-compassion is, is being kind to ourselves, right? But while we're being kind to ourselves, it's knowing that we're human and that we're not perfect, right? That we all make mistakes and being not only okay with that, but accepting that, 
And I think acknowledging it and accepting it. So we're not setting ourselves up for that failure, right? So there's not this high expectation that we're never going to accomplish, right? I think if we keep putting these high expectations on ourselves or unrealistic expectations, that's when we start feeling bad about ourselves because we can't achieve them. And that then would impact our self-esteem, right? So how we evaluate ourselves, how we judge ourselves, our self-worth is all related to our self-esteem. And then what was the other one we mentioned? Perfectionism, right? Defining that one. Defining perfectionism, differentiating between self-compassion and self-esteem. Right. So then perfectionism is kind of this idea of always striving for, for better, right? Or striving for perfection, which we know doesn't exist. And it, it's that fear of failure, right? Because if we have a fear of failure and if we're striving for, I mean, rather, if, we, if we're striving for something that maybe doesn't exist, we're going to be setting ourselves up for failure. So that's going to then feed into this fear of failure along the way. And then self-compassion, so the difference between self-compassion and self-esteem really is with self-compassion, we're not judging ourselves. Mm. We're not evaluating ourselves, right? The self-compassion is going back to that mindfulness idea and accepting ourselves for who we are right now, right here in a non-judgmental way. But self-esteem is we're evaluating ourselves, we're putting that judgment on ourselves and different resource, different external factors and internal factors affect our self-esteem. But if we're striving for something that maybe doesn't exist, that's gonna lower our self-esteem because we, we, we can't achieve it, right? That makes a lot of sense. So I love that. I love the, the differences between self-compassion and self-esteem because I think it can be very easy for dancers to think, okay, well, I have to improve my self-esteem. In order to do that, I have to do better in class. I have to get stronger. I have to improve my endurance. I have to work on my pirouettes or whatever. Um, and like you said, that at the end of the day is kind of like feeding into um, uh, like uh, this lack of mindfulness and this lack of the ability to understand what is enough and feel like we're enough. And, and it really just can lead us to burnout, right? It sounds like Absolutely. striving for self-esteem versus now this idea of self-compassion. So can you kind of just tell us how maybe more specifically dancers can start focusing and utilizing self-compassion in the dance studio? Because I just want to say one thing, a lot of dancers uh, I know a lot of dancers listening out there who are listening in the future are going to say, okay, well, I get that perfectionism is unattainable, but I've seen other dancers do X, Y, Z. I need to work to do X, Y, Z. So how can we utilize self-compassion so that we're not so focused on trying to achieve the next step that it's limiting, limiting our progression? Right. So, and, and it's so hard. I mean, I, I've worked with dancers and, and it's difficult because we know what dancers need to put into their, their daily routine, their career in order to be successful, right? Mm -hmm. And there is this built-in kind of comparison and, and you know, there, there is the, I don't want to, I don't, you know, like the best dancer in the group, you know, the prima ballerina, the the this, the one who has the, I forget all the terms, but like the lead role, right? So it's, it's hard because that comparison exists already. And if we think about it, human behavior, we, as humans, we compare, right? Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's the truth, right? It, we're programmed to do it. We, we compare. And I think that's where we can bring that self-compassion in and we can mm -hmm. compare less. 
right? Mm -hmm. Or we can, when we see differences, we can acknowledge that there's differences and accept that we are not the same person and that's okay, right? So we can focus on our strengths and remind ourselves, and that's where the positive self-talk can come in as well. We can remind ourselves of what our strengths are and what makes us unique or what makes us different. And maybe we're not the best at the pirouette. So we're not the best at this, but we're strong in other areas. So I think reminding ourselves of that and being okay with it and allowing ourselves to be human because that's what we are. And I think the opposite of that is just always striving for something that doesn't exist. And then that's like you said, that's going to lead to burnout. And that can be in any area of our life, if it's as a dancer or, or in anything else, if we continue to work and work and work and we feel like we're not getting any closer, you know, we just keep working for more and more, that's going to turn to either injury, right, illness or burnout or all of the above. Do you have any specific tools that you would give, you know, whether it's like one of your patients or that you would give a dancer to start? practicing self-compassion like now today? Yeah, such, such a great question. Um, so one I would say is to practice mindfulness, right? Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is uh, in like the simplest terms to just be aware. So, so maybe we're talking about mindfulness of our thoughts. Maybe we're talking about mindfulness of, you know, just anything where we are right now, but kind of to be more aware and to be more present. So to acknowledge, you know, what your thoughts are. Maybe they're not helpful and that's okay, but we have to first acknowledge the thoughts and then identify if they're not helpful thoughts. So if somebody does have a fear of failure or fear that they're never going to be good enough or they're, you know, if they're labeling themselves as a failure. So these are all what we call cognitive distortions or I like to just call them unhelpful thoughts. But the first step would just to be more aware of those thoughts. So then we can identify which are unhelpful and then we can tweak them to be more helpful. And whenever I talk about those unhelpful thoughts, I like to remind people that when we tweak them or when we change them, the idea is not for them to be the complete opposite. It's not for them to be perfect in a positive way. The idea is for them to be realistic and attainable, mm -hmm. right? So if I were to say, like, if my thought was I'm a failure, maybe I don't know, or, or maybe it'll be I'm not going to get this role, or I am a failure, um, the, the change thought is not supposed to be like, I'm going to get it, I'm going to succeed, I'm a success, because that might also not be true, right? So instead, it's just being a little more realistic, but a little kinder with our words. So maybe it's, I don't know if I'm going to get that role, but I'm going to try my best. Mm -hmm. That's a more helpful, neutral thought. So to just kind of be mindful of that, because our thoughts emotions and behaviors are all linked. So if we think something like I'm a failure, I'm going to feel like a failure and perhaps I'm going to act in a way as if I was a failure, right? So if we tweak that, like if we just change that to what I was saying, like, I don't know if I'm going to get it, but I'm going to try my best. That has a different feel to it that, you know, maybe it's motivating, right? I'm, I'm going to try my best. I know I'm trying my best. It just feels different. I'm going to then act differently and I'm going to feel differently as well. I love the idea. Well, there's two things I love here. <laughs> the first thing is I love identification. Normal human behavior to somewhat try and like push away discomfort in the sense that when we have negative thoughts, 
it could be like the immediate thought to either try and numb them or ignore them. Whereas you're saying, no, let them in. Like let's, you know, the negative thoughts are there. It's not a matter of totally diminishing them. It's actually a matter of identifying them, picking them apart. And then not, like you said, not necessarily turning them into this unrealistic positive situation because it's okay to have negative thoughts. Um, but rather, how can we neutralize it? And we see this with food too. Ice cream is unhealthy compared to broccoli. And that's a labeling example. I would say, okay, well, listen, if we're comparing like the nutrient density of the broccoli versus, I don't know, whatever dessert might be, sure, maybe there's more vitamins in the broccoli. That could be true. But um, how do we neutralize this thought so that we don't necessarily label something like broccoli as being this good food and, and ice cream as being this bad food because they both can fit into our lifestyle. Does that make sense? Is what I'm saying like is making sense? In Absolutely. Neutralizing those foods, it's very similar to how you're saying, well, neutralize these thoughts. And, and actually what I didn't mention is when we identify the thought, we often then pause and examine the evidence. So like, where's the evidence? I, I didn't mention that before, but you um, before we tweak it. But where is the evidence that I'm a failure? Where is the evidence, you could say that broccoli is bad, right? So fine, may, maybe the evidence with, I mean, not broccoli being bad, it, I know you said the opposite, but where is the evidence that we'll say ice cream is bad, which it's not, um, but where is the evidence? There is no evidence, fine. We, we could say the data is the nutritional label, right? The nutrition is there's less nutrients in ice cream. Right. But where's the evidence that it's bad? There is none. So then what would be a more helpful thought? To be honest, I would say ice cream is ice cream. We're, we're labeling it as it is, right? There doesn't need to be a good or bad associated. Yes, maybe it's less healthy, right? If you wanted to look at it on that spectrum. But once again, where's the evidence? Find the facts, the data. We want to look at the data. When we're talking about food, there is data, right? We do have the nutritional data. Um, but who says it's bad or good? What does good or bad even mean? Right. right? Exactly. So like I would say, and, and it's funny that we're talking about this because I will never forget a, a client and I hope she hears this one day because um, we always joke about this conversation. She was talking about a salad she was having and there was so much thought about if she should get the croutons or not. <laughs> and I remember saying, it's just a crouton. Eat the crouton. <laughs> And so she always goes back to this idea that, like, I will never forget Dr. Rachel saying, it's just a crouton, but that's all it is, right? Like, where's the evidence that it's bad to have a crouton or croutons in your salad? If you want to eat them, eat them. It's mm -hmm. just a crouton. It's just ice cream. Mm -hmm. and, and by the way, for everyone listening, we actually do have really great evidence to show that any type of food restriction is going to yeah. impede on your, you know, mental and even physical well-being. So, you know, the, the interesting thing about like today's world versus like where we were 30 years ago in nutritional science is that we actually have a really nice body of evidence now that shows that diets don't work. Now we know that, you know, restrictions in any sense are, are gonna um, impede on our mental and emotional well-being. We know that, that, that we do have solid evidence for that. So, but that's kind of just a sidetrack. To get back to right. uh, <laughs> What you're saying, you know, while, while being in the dance studio, I think it's so fascinating to hear about the process that a dancer can go through in their mind in regards to identifying what negative thoughts are there and then 
working to neutralize them, make them more realistic and practical and perhaps identifying, like you said, the facts or identifying what's not true, what is true. And if it is true, well, then how can we rephrase it in a kinder voice? That's all so helpful. Exactly. And I think also in the dance studio, especially, you know, because I think, like we said before, dancers are striving for better, right? Like if it's perfectionism or it's better or whatever it is, right? And I think we need to, to acknowledge that that's also okay to strive for excellence, right? Or strive for stronger, or strive for, you know, as long as that's realistic, of course. But I think, you know, there then becomes that difference between excellence and wanting to do our best and achieving something that is not realistic, right? So, and, and our best, though, also looks very different to, than everybody else's, you know? And I know this is not related to dance, but since we both mentioned being moms before, you know, like I often say, I'm the best mom to my child, right? Like I'm not comparing to anybody else, but for my child, I'm the best mom for him. Um, and I think that's how we can take like any of this really is that, you know, perhaps if I was still a dancer, um, I'm the best dancer for me to do this role, you know, or I'm the strongest in this, or this is my strength. So I think identifying those strengths is important and reminding ourselves of that because we can often get in our own heads and those negative thoughts can start spiraling. And before we know it, we're like in a bad place, right? But if we can remind ourselves of what our strengths are and what, you know, makes us unique, um, I, I think that's important. And that's also being kind to ourselves, right? Like giving ourselves that positive self-talk when it's realistic. Yeah, and this also really ties in well with confidence because, and trust, self-trust and confidence. Um, as you're talking about, you know, this great way of being a mom and knowing that I'm the best mom for my son, I will say even in my journey of like my um, four and a half years thus far of being a mom, it's taken me a journey to realize that. And I think that stems from me needing to build my own confidence in my own body as a mom. And I think it really relates to dancers too. It's a matter of having self-compassion, having appreciation for yourself so that you can build body confidence um, and be the dancer that's going to progress in the best way that suits you, not the other dancers in the room that you might be comparing yourself to. It all ties together so well. It, absolutely. And as you're saying that, I'm actually even thinking about taking a step further about being our true self and our ideal self, right? That if we are trying to be somebody that we're not, right? So if, it, if it's being the mom that we're not or being the dancer that we're not, it's actually going to be harder work, right? Mm -hmm. It's harder to be something that we're not. And then we're striving and pretending to be something that we're not. But if we can accept who we are for who we are and be confident with that and be true to ourselves, I think then we're able to really build that confidence and have those strengths and be unique and but but accept it on a different level. Mm, absolutely. This was honestly incredible. I mean, you've given us such helpful and incredible points. Uh, in regards to how a dancer can take their actual practice in the studio and excel rather than get too caught up in their head with comparisons around them and utilize things like self-compassion and 
um, as a way to navigate perhaps the idea of perfectionism. So that was so helpful. And even with body image, right? And just and building that trust and confidence with body image. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, as we know, can be so difficult for, for anybody these days. But I think especially dancers, when, you know, so much of dance is, you know, unfortunately, you know, showing your body, right? right. So I think especially for dancers, it's, it's very difficult to have that body confidence and, and building that body image. But I think that goes back to that same idea that if we can compare less, and we can be more in the moment and accepting without judgment. Um, you know, it's like we're able to be our best selves when when we get to that point that we're able to do that and just accept us for who we are and the way that we are. Yeah. And actually, just to recap on one other thing you said that really stood out to me is this idea, the differences, again, between utilizing self-compassion versus just thinking about self-esteem and that word judgment and just having a judgment-free approach. That's where we see self-compassion versus self-esteem. We're kind of comparing ourselves where we're uh, placing judgment on ourselves compared to maybe the next dancer or compared to what we think we can do compared you know, to, again, these unrealistic perhaps images that we have of whether it's ourselves or another dancer. So I love that idea of having this judgment-free approach uh, in the classroom and even for oneself on their own body. Yeah. And, and I just want to add that I, I know as we're talking about it, it probably sounds like it's very easy to do mm -hmm. all of these things. So I do want to just remind people that, that I understand and I know you understand also that this is not easy, right? Mm -hmm. It does, it does take work. Um, and I often say, like, we put the work in maybe now, so it's easier later. It becomes natural. It becomes kind of our automatic thoughts, our automatic behaviors. Um, but, but we don't have to jump there all of a sudden, right? We can take small steps every day to work towards that. And I think, you know, like we said, to kind of just start now by being more aware of your thoughts is a really good place to start. Um, but don't think that, like, you know, tomorrow you're going to, like, fully accept yourself and love yourself and, you know, and also know that that can change, right? We don't have to fully love ourselves, um, but we have to accept ourselves. And that can sometimes take a lot of time to, to get there, um, but it's not impossible. All right. Well, Rachel, on that note, can you please tell everyone listening where they can find you? Because um, having a resource like Rachel, or I should say like Dr. Goldman, because we're both Rachels here. <laughs> So beneficial to dancers. So where can dancers find you? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so on Instagram, I'm Dr. Rachel NYC, and my website is also drrachelnyc.com. So um, you know, either one of those is fine as a way to reach out. I always like to remind people that Instagram is not therapy, but I'm always happy to get DMs to you know get back to people with resources or point them in the right direction. Um, so I'm always happy to connect with people as well. Um, and thank you, I, I love that. And and I I actually recommend you many times to to clients or colleagues to go to your website for the downloads or, you know, to follow you on Instagram, because I think you really do provide amazing information. And although I know your focus is on, you know, the performing arts, I think a lot of it really can be generalizable um, to really anybody. So I, I, I find it very helpful. Yeah, Rachel, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for connecting. I look forward to many more times of connecting.
Thank you, you too. And I'm just going to say that we completed this and neither of our little ones barged in, although I hear, I hear mine in the background. But so that's a success, right? I think mine is asleep right now. Who knows if I go, when I go up there, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? As I mentioned to you earlier, and if either of them barged in, that would be okay too, because we're human and we're moms and this is life.